Welcome to Chant It Down Radio. I'm your host, Loomis. ChantItDownRadio.com is the website. Today's episode is 152, part 14 of the Beyond Earth series, in which I have a guest on, Paul Anthony Wallace, the author of Escaping Eden. And today we're going to explore our extraterrestrial origins, talk about what really went on in the past, so we have a clear path of the present. Chant It Down Radio is coming to you live from the Hawaiian Islands, coming from the perspective of complete freedom, coming from wisdom outside the system, and then some. This is the mouthpiece of the natural earth forgotten. At this point in time, humanity's been kept from the truth, so Chant It Down Radio offers the coordinates to a path out. You're searching for something whole, cause what you see is real life. You're watching this world unfold, the truth beneath the lies. Rekindling what's been stole, the need to free one's mind. Uncover the truth exposed, so people see the light. Let's shut it down so we can know. It's simple, we just break it down a little bit so we can process all. Make the switch to elevate yourself to conscious mode. And it's beneficial, we can get this kind of road and get the future. Generators want to stop the whole thing But the message to this city we can start a post Taking in the simulating, getting lots of numbers Waking up the population, try to stop hypnosis Welcome to Channet Down Radio Where we deprogram from the deprogram You found yourself here, so maybe you're meant to be here And I'm Loomis, I'm your host uh, Thanks for listening in This is Beyond Earth series part 14, where we dive into the subjects that get into the big picture today. Through this monumental, troublesome year, 2020, I've been giving you lots of info on current events, but in the back of my mind, I kept getting this nudge to prepare and pay attention to ufology and look at our biggest picture, because I know that we are on a timeline, and Whenever big changes occur in our lives, I always gravitate toward the biggest picture, and that is understanding our bigger place in the universe and understanding our real human history, because our origins are also related to now. So Paul Wallace is a researcher, author, and speaker about spirituality and mysticism with a background in a church ministry training pastors to, pastors to interpret the Bible. He started researching questions And it went into a new path of breakthroughs that led to his book, Escaping from Eden, which poses the question, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? That's right up my line of questioning in looking at this giant picture. And we are going to try to decipher the real story of creation, looking at the ancient cultures of the world. We have a bigger story to understand our path and place in this universe. So welcome, Paul Wallace, to Chenna Down Radio. Oh, Loomis, thank you so much. Good day from Australia, and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's good, good to have you on. Thanks for coming on. We you know, appreciate to be able to connect like this and speak about some, some profound things. Um, I found your, your work very unique, given your background, because not many who claim Christianity accept the look into the Sumerian tablets and the prehistory things or have even heard of it i talked to everyone of all beliefs but i've i've never really discounted the bible but i've had lots of questions i've always yearned for more understanding especially when it comes to genesis and i guess 
the first question everybody probably asks you, how did you make the transition from preacher and Bible scholar to incorporating this larger view of reality? And then the second question would be, how did it change your relationship with God? Oh, those are great questions. Uh, the key element for me was time, really. I had been, as you say, uh, involved heavily involved in Christian ministry for a long time, 33 years as a church doctor, a church planter. I worked as an archdeacon for the Anglican Church here in Australia and as a theological educator, training uh, pastors to interpret ancient texts and the Bible in particular. And in all that time, I was continually involved in local faith communities and teaching from the Bible. And so it was really in that that the seeds were sown for escaping from Eden, because anyone who teaches from the Bible will, every so often, fairly regularly, come across anomalies in the text that just don't fit with the general story we tell ourselves uh, about the world, about the cosmos, about where we all came from. And so you might just chalk down, oh, that's, uh, I can't quite get my head around what's going on there, must look into that sometime. But unfortunately, um, Bible scholars, pastors get as uh, overstressed and over busy as everybody else. And very often we don't have the time to go back and drill into these little glitches that are really signaling to us that our story's off, that there's another story in those texts that's uh, somewhat hidden in plain sight. And the key for me in making the transition was actually having the time. Uh, the beginning of escaping from Eden, I talk about suffering an ultimate frisbee injury, which uh, we play frisbee rough in Australia. Uh, yeah. But it's a bit of a, a metaphor, really, for my good fortune in being given time every so often to come aside from the, the hurly-burly and the rat race and spend time in study drilling down into some questions that have been with me for a long, long time. Really, from way back, from the time I was about 11 years old, I had questions about the stories we tell ourselves about where humanity has come from. Because I found when I was at school, when I went to science for an answer, there was a gap in our ability to explain the human race. The only reason human beings are at the top of the tree here is because of our higher consciousness, intelligence, and technology. And science couldn't quite explain where all that came from. How come we have that and the other animals don't? So there's a little gap there. And then if I went to religion for an answer, because in the, my early years I went to a Church of England school, well, then it was quite a lazy answer if I went to religion, which simply said, well, we are God's special creation. Well, if that's the case, then how come we're so clearly animals? We're clearly a type of primate. How does that fit with God's special creation? So that had always fascinated me from. But in the last few years, when I had the time to go back to these anomalies in the text and say, OK, what actually is going on there? Because these things don't quite make sense the way they're translated uh, morally, theologically, there's something else going on there. And it was drilling into those that uh, led me to my first red pill on this whole topic. Yeah. So there's always been little things for me, too, uh, in the Bible. And I'm not much of a Bible scholar, uh, but there were always things that I questioned 
um, especially when I think it was when Cain in the Bible was sent away to like a city or something. I'm like, well, wait a minute, who are all these other people? And um, just the fact that you can look into, well, you can look later on in life. I looked into the Bible versus the Enuma Elish. It's it's yeah. obvious obvious that Genesis is just echoing these older Sumerian and Mesopotamian stories. You got the seven tablets of the Enuma Elish, the seven days of creation. You got Adam versus Adamu, or the Garden of Eden versus Eden. Uh, then you have what's Noah versus, uh, I think his name, Zeo Sudra, and many other yeah. parallels. So, you know, why, why do you think this story has been so suppressed? Most, Moses apparently brought the first five books of the Bible to the surface, yet left out a, a bigger creation story and left out the books of Enoch, uh, the Sumerian, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian myths, and not once are even the pyramids mentioned in the Bible, and he came from there. So, I mean, which why have our origins been so suppressed? We're, we're not even taught about ancient Sumerian school. I mean, where did this suppression begin, and why do you think it was done? Yes, the story of suppression really is absolutely fascinating because the story of suppression is actually told in the Bible itself when you join the dots. And what you just said, Lomas, is, is quite right. It is very clear that the biblical accounts are based on the Mesopotamian accounts, the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian narratives recorded on the cuneiform tablets. But in actual fact, we didn't know that until the 1800s because we dug up the cuneiform tablets in the 1500s and realized that we were digging up stuff from some lost civilizations, but no one could read the glyphs. And a lot of scholars said, well, that's not writing. Writing hadn't been invented by by then, so this must be pure decoration. And so they sat in the vaults of museums for 300 years until 1835, when we found the translation key. I say we, it was the East India Tea Company uh, who sent Henry Rawlinson to uh, discover this inscription that decoded the cuneiform. So it's from the 1830s on that we had the tools to begin reading these tablets. And suddenly we read these stories and think, hang on, that sounds like Adam and Eve. That sounds like the creation story. That sounds like the flood. That sounds like the limiting of human life. That sounds like the Tower of Babel. That sounds like Cain and Abel. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that the familiar stories of Genesis and later into the Bible are based on these earlier stories. Now, that shouldn't have been a great shock because, in fact, Abraham and Sarah uh, were the progenitors of the Hebrew tradition and they came out of a Sumerian-based culture. So it's not surprising that they would bring with them everything they learned in their childhood. They were mature people by the time they moved to create their own family tradition, their own culture, and they brought with them the stories of beginnings they had been taught from out of the Mesopotamian uh, tradition. But the Bible then takes quite a while to evolve, and we have moments looking in it when you can see this rather interesting story that the Mesopotamian narratives hold being pared down and pared down and kind of whitewashed into a story of monotheism. The original stories are not. I mean, you read these Sumerian stories, God doesn't feature in them. 
their version of Adam and Eve, uh, the fall, the flood, Tower of Babel and all that, God doesn't feature. Those original stories are stories of our ancestors bumping up against sky people, uh, people who have visited Earth from somewhere else, from another planet, and have colonized planet Earth, uh, modified our ancestors, and are working with them as their kind of workforce. Those are the original stories of the, of the Mesopotamian corpus. And then the supposed God stories get based on those. But when you get to um, the Ten Commandments, for instance, there's a big clue right there that we're not looking at, at a monotheistic story in its original form, because it begins, you must have no other powerful ones before me worship only Yahweh that's the message don't bow down to them don't depict them so there's an acknowledgement of a plurality of powerful beings there and then in that text if you go to Joshua there's a moment when now he's the leader who comes after Moses where he says don't serve the powerful ones your ancestors did on the other side of the river in Mesopotamia don't serve the powerful ones of the Egyptians or the powerful ones of the Amorites you are going to serve only Yahweh. And again, there's this plurality of mysterious beings affirmed. And you get further into the Bible and you realize that the Yahweh character is in competition with these other powerful ones. Now, it makes sense the moment you translate the words according to their root meanings so that the word that often gets translated as God gets translated as powerful ones, because etymologically that's what it means. As soon as you do that, you realize the story of the powerful ones is the story of the sky people. And so with that framework, you can see there's this shutting down of memory, this shutting down of the narrative, even within the Bible itself. And then things happened within the early days of Christianity that ruled out this uh, more careful reading of the Hebrew scriptures. There were church fathers who from the very beginning said these early stories are not about God. They're about other kinds of entity. And unfortunately, they got voted out. And the edit uh, that was done on the Hebrew canon to turn it into a story of monotheism was sort of re-endorsed by Christianity over the first few centuries. So it got lost that way. And then through the course of history, when... Uh, empires start invading other people's countries and we start hearing other people's creation stories from other sources we hear about these sky people these visitors from another planet and as um, Christian imperial forces went into Central and South America for instance they simply confiscated those other stories burned them executed the priesthoods that curated those stories and got rid of the story that way in the early years of Christianity, the Gnostic texts had to be buried for their protection because they held other stories. And so the story of suppression of this much wider explanation of who we all are, where we came from, the fact that we're in a populated universe, that suppression is all tied in with the history of not only of, of religious thought, but the history of empire. And because empires have anchored themselves to what we might call Catholic Christianity, um, it was a relationship between orthodoxy and empire and military power that just shut down every other explanation and kept to this narrow, narrow story of God, us and nobody else. OK, yeah. So 
So going back to Yahweh, do you think Yahweh is a different faction of being than the beings that preceded him? Or was he, like, who, who do you think Yahweh may have been exactly? Yes, it's a, it's a really fascinating question. And it's difficult to, to answer the question of, well, is, does God meaning the cosmic source, appear in the Bible at all? Is that who Yahweh was or, or what's the picture? And it's, it's deliberately been made difficult because there's a very broad scholarly consensus that the final edit of the Hebrew scriptures was done in the 6th century BCE to harmonize this huge library of texts that forms the Hebrew Bible, harmonize it into a book that teaches a single theology about a single God. And so there's an airbrushing over of these other stories and it becomes very opaque as to what's really going on. In the earlier stories, it looks like Yahweh is simply one of the powerful ones, one of the factions in competition with the others, going to war with the others. Yahweh was with his human beings and then the rule of Ekron with his human beings, so on and so forth. But by the time you're at the end of the Hebrew scriptures, it does look like some of those later prophets, when they use the word Yahweh, they are actually talking about something different. They're talking about the source of the cosmos and everything in it. They're talking about a source of intelligence and consciousness and love and harmony. And yet they're using the same name because the same name has been put into the earlier texts. But I would say we've got two very distinct concepts and that wherever you see Yahweh as an active character in the story, you're actually looking at the story of a powerful one, an Elohim. And sometimes it's easy to see the, the glue and the joins as to where that name has been put into far older stories that are actually about sky people corralling and managing Project Humanity. Yeah, Project Humanity. That's good. It's true. Uh, what with Moses could could Moses have been you know some scholars think maybe he was Akhenaten or King Sargon Sargon as some people theorize I mean do you do you, do you have any info on that at all or do you think he was his own being I don't really have any special info on Moses as Akhenaten I find that a very fascinating question because scholars have long struggled to correlate the um, the Hebrew stories of the Hebrew canon uh, with uh, the Egyptian chronicles. They don't meld and match very easily. But certainly Akhenaten is an intriguing character because from out of nowhere, he arrives, he looks very different to those who came before him and those who came after him. And he is um, <laughs> he's portrayed as a reforming king, which means that this was a pharaoh who came in with monotheism and right. wanted to get rid of all this idea of serving a multiplicity of beings and say, no, look, there's only one cosmic source, which is a wonderful contribution. Very disempowering, of course, to the status quo and to the priesthoods and, and all the ways in which they, um, the privileges they enjoyed within Egyptian society were threatened by Akhenaten. So it's a very interesting and untidy story. Where did he come from? Where did he get that view uh, is a matter that is really, really fascinating. And, of course, Moses is an intriguing figure because somewhere he must 
if he's an historical character, fit into the Egyptian story? Because we're told he was an Egyptian prince. So what does that mean and where does he fit? The timelines don't quite line up if you want to harmonize them. But the more I have studied, the more I've realized that the question marks over the timelines of Egyptian uh, history and Hebrew history are far more numerous than generally get acknowledged. And dating those pyramids is a bit of a question. And dating pre-dynastic Egypt is an absolute mystery. So it's not something I've probed very deeply as yet, but it is certainly something that's very fascinating because it relates to the question of how did these stories intersect with actual history? If you read a, a mythology, there's always that question of how do I read this? Is this like a diary entry, blow by blow, this is what happened? Is this some kind of a a national chronology, so there's a glorification of the winners. Am I reading that? Or is it some kind of metaphor? Is it an esoteric text? And every time we read something from antiquity, we have to ask those questions. What am I reading? How do I read it? And how does it relate to what actually went down? Yeah, yeah, definitely, because you don't know how exactly it's meant to be read whether it's supposed to be a literal thing or not. And a lot of people do take it literal, and they do they do pull out of some of these stories metaphors that are useful for our um, society, I think, but are they really meant to be literal, literal or metaphor, you know? True. Now, of course, in, in faith circles, very often um, people lean to another way of reading these stories, which is if you're a preacher, you're supposed to come away with some intelligent moral of the story. Uh, each time you preach a sermon. And so people approach Jewish uh, and Christian mythology in that way, are these moral tales. But part of the anomalies that grip me is that there are so many stories in the Hebrew canon that simply don't work as moral tales. There's no way they've been curated for that reason, because the morals that emerge from them are just absurd. As I reread these and retranslated them, I realized that there were correlations with other ancestral narratives all around the world. And it was all the explanations that tied up and agreed and correlated that really got my attention. And very often you find things that appear to be memories of things that were seen. And so you've got the writers certainly using metaphors, but they're using metaphors to describe something that they saw. And so they're describing it with the vocab and, and the frameworks that they had. Those overlaps are fascinating. And it was those that led me to think I, these might not be literal blow by blow. This is what happened stories. But this level of agreement tells me that they are carrying memory of things that really happened. And that leads to the question, well, what did happen? And that's really what got me on the road to writing Escaping from Eden. Yeah. Well, let's get into your book a little bit. You say that believing in the Elohim from the Bible as God is destructive on our behalf because it makes monsters out of us. And it really did. If you look at the many wars in the angry God of the Old Testament, you know, that would have no other gods before him, like you said, you know, jealous God, that's not consciousness almighty that's that's a lower form of emotion and the perspective yes. of the colonizers too i mean people like you said that went into south america or 
all over the world and colonizing the excuses for violence in the name of God, who were really these gods with a little g, I would say. And after the Elohim came here in, in a, a usury way of mining the planet for gold, although that is the Zechariah Stitchin version, which many refute, and we can get into that later, but this, but this not caring for the inhabitants yes. and previous way of life before they got here, which has in turn given humans a way to kind of pattern after that. So escaping from Eden is what we must do in order to correct and repair our path to a higher consciousness. A massive reframing of our position as beings in the universe. Is is that kind of what you mean by escaping Eden, like just getting away from that pattern? Definitely. Absolutely. And it is a massive reframing. And it does relate to that that question of the possibility of mining it's an interesting point because that is uh, mentioned very glancingly in genesis because we have the story of eden this safe enclosed zone where the human beings are are generated and then developed and it's in a region called eden we're told and conveniently close to that region are some key mineral deposits that's just what genesis says and then there's a little verse that says, and then the powerful ones put the human beings to work. And uh, you put all that together. And I don't think the work means a little like gardening. Why on earth would Adam and Eve need to know where the key mineral deposits are? It's not of interest to them. It's no. of interest to the colonizers. And it, uh, that hints at a bigger storyline, which is that the Elohim, the powerful ones, have turned up for something other than us. They've turned up some of them perhaps simply because they want minerals that planet Earth has to offer. Others have turned up for other reasons. Others turn up later for reasons to do with us because they want to hybridize with the local human population for whatever reasons. So, and so we, we're clued to the fact that there is a spectrum of ET visitors and colonizers who then bump up against each other in what the Bible calls the divine council or the heavenly council. I call it the Sky Council because there's nothing very divine or heavenly about what goes on there. They're actually conflicting with each other, competing with each other and having arguments about um, the place of human beings on planet Earth, uh, how Project Earth should be managed. Not only arguments, they have wars with each other. Those wars are recorded in the Bible, in Greek legend, Norse legend, in the Vedas, all around the world. These stories are told of this this spectrum of presences, apparently with a stakeholding in Project Earth. And human beings are caught in the crossfire uh, of these conflicts. And when you look at what the arguments were, and again, Escaping from Eden says you can find all this in Genesis, in the books of the Bible, when you do that translation switch on the word Elohim. And what they're arguing about is, when it comes to us, how many human beings do we want on the planet? Because some feel there are simply too many. How long-lived do we want them to be? How healthy? What access to food? What access to medicines? What access to us, the ones who govern everything? And these are the same conflicts that play out in other ancestral narratives. And I find actually thinking about all those, they're, they're, they are curiously topical. They are curiously relevant struggles. What access to healthy food? What access to 
safe water, those are issues of the 21st century. What access to medicine? 21st century issue around, you know, the patents around medication and so on and so forth. They're very, very topical. Anyone who rereads these stories will be asking, were these stories written about the past or were they written to explain to us why things are the way they are now? Uh, are they sounding a warning to us? And certainly that those questions were in my mind, having reread these stories. Yeah. Yeah. So they're basically limiting what we can have access to. And that's still today in our modern world. We are we are limited and we live in scarcity still today because yeah. of that same pattern that they have brought humans from way back. Yet the earth is abundant if we wanted to. If they just let us live. Yeah, if we managed it differently, that's right. And to come back on what, what you were saying, Lumas, when these stories um, get uh, whitewashed over and turned into the story of God, you're quite right. We end up with a monstrous God. Instead of having um, factions arguing against each other, you've got God arguing against himself, failing to anticipate the obvious, genociding humans when he gets bored of them, can turn on a dime, can't be reasoned with, is is terribly violent and unforgiving. And if we believe that's the story of God, then we turn humanity into a quivering mess, uh, overpowered by a being who is absolutely terrifying. And unfortunately, that's what the current translation does with those old stories. And so you've got faith communities all around the world who then have to square this circle of wanting to believe in God as the loving source of all things, but having these stories of horror and mayhem and violence that they then have to excuse. And the moment you excuse them and say, oh, God can do anything, well, you can draw a straight line from that equation to all the violence, murder and mayhem that's been committed in the name of God in the centuries since. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think the Anunnaki or Elohim or, you know, there could have been many beings because you can look at the Enki versus uh, his brother. Enlil. Uh, El- 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 yeah. Uh, they could have been two different factions, but I know it was like forbidden to depict what these gods looked like. Were, were they just bigger versions of us, do you think? Or some say, I mean, some researchers say that the elite are from a reptilian bloodline, but they appear as human like us, yeah. and we don't look reptilian either, so I've never quite bought into that, at least for the external parts of it and you have skeletal remains of giants having reddish hair six fingers six toes in the americas uh some researchers say that these gods in quotes or gods with a little g were walking amongst us uh, us and in our lives around till around a thousand bc when they held back from our world what what are you what are your thoughts on all that like did did you think that they decided to stop intervening in our lives or I know there's a lot of questions in there, but. <laughs> yeah, I think reading the world's mythologies, listening to ancestral narratives, there is a coherent picture that comes together. And it's a picture of a huge range of visitors over a very, very long history of humanity and planet Earth. And it's very possible that some of the visitors looked very different to us and we've got moments of history where there's no face-to-face contact with the colonizers only the priesthoods have face-to-face contact and there's a possibility that you've got beings that look rather different 
rather frightening who are still managing the planet but not doing it face to face. Then you have interesting periods of history, and this certainly comes up in the Bible, where the powerful ones don't seem to be present anymore. They do seem to have withdrawn, and I wonder if that's similar to what we do when we invade each other's countries. You know, we go in with military force and we take over. We provide the education. We provide the police. We are the army. We run the banks. We set the commodity prices and exchange rates, etc., etc. We cream off all the uh, the natural resources and take them home. Thank you very much. And then after a while, we can relax a bit. Let the locals produce their own police, their own school teachers, their own bank managers, so on and so forth. But as long as we've set the commodity prices, exchange rates, and we have the supply line sorted out, we can go home and still benefit from being at the top of the economic tree. It's possible some of our colonizers did exactly that. Interestingly, when you go back to the incursions and colonization mentioned by the Mesopotamian stories, we have a clue in the Bible that tells us what those particular invaders look like, because we have stories of sky people, once we've translated Elohim, turning up and the locals don't notice that they're not human. So Abraham and Sarah have a really interesting encounter just before they get um, artificially pregnant with Isaac, they meet three men and they're just described as men and they just think they're human beings until some weeks, months later, they realize that Sarah is pregnant. And how on earth has that happened? And how did those people know that was going to happen? And they begin putting two and two together, that they weren't ordinary people. Those same people go to the city of Sodom. And we're given another little detail there. Not only did the locals not know they were human, but apparently they were phenomenally attractive. They were movie star attractive because if you can picture, I don't know if you've ever seen how the Beatles were mobbed back in the 60s whenever right. they went yeah. to a public place or how Michael Jackson excited crowds wanting to see him performed or what happens when Justin Bieber turns up at an airport. That's the kind of scene because people were so overpowered, thrilled and excited by these incredibly beautiful, sexy people who've just arrived. So there's a clue that some of our visitors just look like us, only better looking. And then you go to the stories of the Sky Council and you've got beings that are very, very different to us, arconic entities that are not physical. They are energy-based entities who then live parasitically uh, in relationship with uh, biological beings like us. So it, it couldn't be a bigger spectrum that we are told about within the Bible and stories all around the world, each year with a somewhat different agenda and conflicting with each other. They have some kind of an arrangement which would seem to include a, uh, a non-disclosure clause because for the most part we have in modern times been left in the dark as to what company we are in and what company we've kept in, in the ages through history and prehistory. Yeah. You brought to mind the some some people say that have experiencers say that they've seen blonde Nordic type people. They they look human but they're 
more beautiful or handsome than your average human, more well-kept looking, I don't know. And that possibly could have been the beings in Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Yes, it could. That is very possible. And what's really interesting about those accounts through history and contemporary accounts is that very often people encounter them and only afterwards think, wait a minute, (laughs) there's something very odd about what just happened. Uh, A lot of people who who tell stories of angels, uh, you get past that word for a moment because it's a religious sounding word and say, well, what did you see? What happened? And you realize some of those might be stories of encounters like that. And there are others who have experiences in time of war where the um, the visit or the intervention is a benevolent one. And you say, OK, who was that? What did that person look like? And that is the description that repeats. And it's a description that goes way, way back into history. And, and I find that quite encouraging that there is uh, a presence that is that close, that is that human looking and that would actually seem to be here, at least in part, for our benefit. Yeah. Positive ETs, people that are yes. here who enlighten us with ways that are good for living and things. Because I think often, you know, when you say the word alien in particular or ETs, it conjures up uh, an image of Mars attacks, invasion of the body snatchers, yeah. Independence Day. And whether you're looking at the ancient past or contemporary report, that is not the whole story of what has been reported. There's something else happening too. Yeah, definitely. So that kind of goes into something I had a question about that it's probably not a you don't probably have an answer for this, but I think about this sometimes I think about, well, okay, so we have in these stories humans that were manipulated, you know, and uh, or changed in some way, um, hybridized. Sometimes, though, I think of the hunter gatherers, such as the many aboriginal tribes in Australia and the sand bushmen of the Kalahari or the, um, the North Sentinel Island tribe as people who never really gravitated toward the ways of civilization. They just, they didn't care. They wanted to stay the way they were. And being that ancient Sumer was most likely the first civilization, do you think that people were just more primitive-like, lived like these kind of people before these invaders came and formed civilization for us to live in? Because, um... I don't know. Every everyone on planet Earth in these tribes were just isolated, and maybe that was it. And they just never found civilization, or were they just people that were they actually people that just never had that extra gene to want to, you know, become part of civilization? What do you think of that? Well, I think there are some different models of civilization, and there are different ways of living on planet Earth. Uh, and it's not it's not a simple story of, um, you know, simple animal like subsistence uh, on the one hand and then New York City on the other hand. It's a little bit more layered. And again, those layers are in our history, prehistory, in our ancestral narratives. And a really interesting place to go for a, for a case study of this is southeast Turkey, because. Uh, scientists have long acknowledged the uh, what's called the problem of Mesopotamia or the problem of Sumeria. This fully developed civilization popping up apparently from out of nowhere right. with mathematics 
uh, money, uh, writing, literature, legal systems, civil engineering, apparently all in one go. How did that happen? Well, in 1998, there was an amazing find in southeast Turkey at a place called Karakadag. And a team went in from the University of Az in Norway and the Max Planck Institute in Cologne, headed up by a scientist called Manfred Hoyne. And they had identified what they believed to be the first farm in the story of what we generally call civilization. And we mean the civilization that sprang up, the earliest one we can find, in uh, the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia. So they find this farm. And what they find is that in an area so localized that it may just have been one family that did it, 11 naturally occurring plants have been genetically modified into crops that can be cultivated on a massive scale. And this family must have been pretty talented because not only did they work out how to do that, but they invented animal husbandry at the same time. And then that technology peppers up all around the planet very, very, very quickly. And that's the anomaly that scientists have long struggled with. Now, it was a huge thing that they did. For perspective, I used to live on the farm uh, where William Farrer lived. And William Farrer is a very important figure in Australian history because he invented Federation wheat. Federation wheat is the strain of wheat that can grow in the harsh conditions of Australia. All the strains of wheat that were brought here from Europe at the time of colonization uh, couldn't survive the climate here. And so his job was to genetically modify wheat until we had a strain that could grow here. He had all the advantages of 19th century science. He had textbooks coming out of his ears. He grew up on a farm. His family was a, a farming family. And yet with all that expertise, it took him 20 years to work out how to modify one crop so it could be cultivated. This family, 10,000 years ago at Karakadag in southeast Turkey, did that 11 times over and invented animal husbandry. Now, that's really intriguing. To me, it hints at the possibility they may have had a little bit of tutelage from someone who, well, we don't know, but intriguingly, you only have to drive a few hundred miles down the road. You're still in Turkey when you get to Gebekli Tepe. I was going and to ask there, about, yeah. at about the same time, you've got a megalithic culture already existing. So hold on a minute. The timeline's been ruined here. We thought we found the first farm. First farm means the first cities and means humans go from living in animal subsistence to living as a civilization with cities. Um, and yet there's a megalithic culture just down the road. So that looks like the tail end of a previous advanced civilization and the beginning of a new one round about the time that human beings were, I was going to say recovering, but really our survival was hanging in the balance at the close of the most recent ice age. And then there's this extraordinary input that's made. But to come back to these two different ways of living on the planet, if, if we consider the possibility that that family at Karakadag had some help, then we might be interested to know that that's exactly what the Babylonian mythology says. It says that some people turned up, we don't know from where, called the Apkalu, and they did look different to us. 
they had some very strange kind of a uniform that they wore that gave them a, a an aquatic kind of appearance. Maybe they were semi-aquatic beings. They are certainly not human. And the Atkalu are the ones the Babylonians credit with teaching not only farming, but mathematics, writing, legal systems, banking, money, all the rest of it. And so all the rudiments of what we call civilization spring up in one go with that model of farming. Now, meanwhile, think about Australia. That happened here where we suddenly found a way of farming on an industrial scale so that we could build European scale cities in Australia. There were people already living here who had lived here for more than 60,000 years who didn't need federation wheat. They knew how to make bread from the naturally occurring grasses. They lived in harmony with nature and had learned how to do that. And if you ask those people how they had learned to do that, and it's pretty impressive because 60,000 years would represent the most sustainable culture on planet Earth. You ask where that knowledge came from, what plants are good to eat, what are good for medicines, when to plant, when to harvest, all that, they will tell you they learned from visitors from somewhere else. And some of the stories point to visitors from a planet somewhere in the Pleiades, which is a strange coincidence, because if you ask the uh, Lakota people of North America or the, um, the Cherokee people, they will give a very similar answer that the beginning of their culture happened with an intervention from outer space, teaching the rudiments of their civilization, which is not about dominating the planet. It's about living in harmony with it. Yeah. And the Hawaiians, too. The Hawaiians. Uh, I live in Hawaii here, so um, they look toward the Pleiades as well. I don't know if they actually say they came from there, but the Polynesian cultures all were one people at one time, so perhaps that's a distant memory of even that far back. But they do yes, point very, very possibly. And I know that there are there are ceremonies that have kept that memory alive through all the ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's hard to say. But moving on a little bit here, going to modern day, we had the Iraq War not too long ago, and then we had suppression of digging and finding the possible tomb of Gilgamesh and the destroying of museum artifacts. And they obviously don't want this information out there, yet if there is a Anunnaki return or Elohim, as some say, what's the, pl- what's the point? Or, or as we'll get into a little later, disclosure, do you think the controllers want us to see a different origin uh, species because they don't obviously want us to see this tomb of Gilgamesh and all the ancient Sumerian and Assyrian, Akkadian, Babylonian artifacts? Well, you know, this is a really interesting time to be alive because in the 21st century we've seen both suppression and disclosure happening. And right. you mentioned the Iraq War, that is certainly part of the story of suppression. Where, and I've heard from people who were part of the 2003 invasion who thought they were going in to lay their lives on the line for freedom, to save the Kurdish people, to save the world from weapons of mass destruction. And then when they get there, they discover they're on an archaeological mission to uh, sequester, archive, confiscate, hard copy evidence of who we are 
as a species and secreted away somewhere. I, I have no idea where. In Australia, we have government and corporate action right now that is destroying hard copy of Australian Aboriginal heritage that tells the story of who we all are and where we came from. And it's all part of a piece with the story I mentioned of Central and Mesoamerica, where we destroy the ancient texts and burn them and archive a few copies for, uh, you know, the emperor and the pope. So they right. know what's going on and nobody else does. So we've got all that kind of suppression still happening. And yet there have been some really extraordinary disclosures made just in the last uh, two or three years. So we had the New York Times in 2017 breaking the story about the engagement of the USS Nimitz with the Tic Tac UFOs. And then a little bit later, the Pentagon comes out and authenticates that, says, yes, that's all real. We have actually had a unit within the Pentagon involved for 70 years in investigating UFO crashes and examining retrieved materials. That's been confirmed by Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and uh, George W. Bush. That's been confirmed by Alain Juillet, the former head of French intelligence. And now, just this week, we've got the story of Haim Ashed, the former head of the Israeli space agency, saying not only is all that true, but there is an ET presence here that we're in contact with that is not disclosing until they feel that humanity is ready. Well, drip, drip, drip from some very authoritative sources. This is not, you know, just some poor farmer in an isolated part of uh, Southern America saying he saw something odd and, and wondering if he's going to be taken seriously. These are authoritative disclosures right. being made on a regular basis. And then on top of that, you've got everything NASA's telling us about with water on neighboring planets, greenhouse gases on neighboring planets, Signs of life, in other words, all of which seem to be either preparing us for bigger disclosures or at the very least a safety measure in case more news comes out that's not uh, under government control, so to speak. But the acceleration of these disclosures and the authority of the people allowed to speak to them has been a very, very dramatic shift in the last three years, and they represent a significant policy shift uh, away from suppression and secrecy, that policy that had been in place for 70 years. And so, yes, I think join the dots and something's going on. Oh, yeah. There's been two bombshells dropped this year, and I think everybody's thinking about COVID. While um, back in March, the Pentagon admitted that they had found off-world vehicles not made on this earth. Yes, and that's right. And then you have, yeah, just a few days ago, the former Israeli space security chief, 30 years he's been working there, admitting that, that they are working with this Galactic Federation, or like you say, the Sky Council, and that Trump was going to spill the beans on aliens, basically. But they said that humans are not ready, and we have underground bases on Mars. It, it's, it sounds like science fiction, but it's actually being said on a, in an official capacity. So I really feel like they are ramping up for it, something really big soon. It, it really does. And if if when Haim Eshed said that uh, President Trump was going to spill the beans, if people hear that and say, well, that sounds like an episode of The Simpsons, uh, actually, President Trump was caught on camera talking about this to his son-in-law, telling his son-in-law that he had what he described as classified information on the Roswell incident. Well, what, what on 
earth could be interesting or classified about the Roswell incident if it isn't what the folklore, what the locals have told us in, in the decades since, that there was an, an E.T. aspect and an E.T. presence that was part of that story. And his son-in-law said, well, would you consider declassifying it? And President Trump said rather thoughtfully, I'd have to think about it. And now Haim Ashed has come in, very credible figure, head for a long time of the Israeli Space Agency, and say, yes, if you notice that, yes, that did happen this year. Yes, it was significant, but we're not anticipating any official disclosures for the time being. And nevertheless, <laughs> that's a huge disclosure in itself. Yeah, that is a huge bombshell on, on everyone. And I think I think it's just everyone's so concerned of what, what's going on right now that it isn't as big of an impact as you would. I know. I, Loomis, I was going to ask what you made of that, because when Eric Davis, who's the physicist, one of the physicists who briefs the Pentagon unit that investigates UFO phenomena, uh, engagements, crashes, etc., when he used that phrase, off-world vehicles not made on this earth, I mean, that not made on this earth is an acknowledgement of another intelligent civilization intersecting with us why wasn't that much bigger news why aren't people amazed what what's your theory on that well i think that it's because uh they've put covid in our faces and everybody's worried about this pandemic and uh especially in march that was that was actually i think in march when they said that so i think um there's this covid line you know this this narrative that they're putting out and meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of other things happening on the planet that we're not paying attention to because they want us to see that, and they kind of don't want us to see. So, so there's obviously two forces at work here, if yes. not more. That's what I think. Yes, I, I agree with that. When when something like COVID is happening, everyone should be paying attention to what else is happening if yes. they want to get an understanding of, of the bit of history that we're in. Yes, well, I mean, on that subject, this might not be your expertise, but I, I will ask it anyway. Just be, you know, um, I'm not sure if you know much about the PCR test that they're testing with, but the person who who um, created it, his name was Kerry Mullis, he said that this test is not to be used for the diagnosis of viruses. Well, he conveniently died in 2019, and it well, all it does is it amplifies DNA a whole bunch of times. So, you know. What might a lot of people are asking, and I've thought this too, what if, if this test is not being used to diagnose a virus, but rather to gather as much DNA as possible for some high up agency to see who's been seeded or hybridized by ET? Yes, I'm not sure that I, I think that's the meaning of, of the test. Uh, I, can, I can follow that logic. It's certainly possible, mm-hmm. but what what I would say is very clear is that our governments all around the world have taken extraordinary measures uh, in the last few months, and in order to get compliance, they need people to be pretty scared. And so the way they've reported statistics on the virus, which is in a way that is totally unprecedented, uh, from day to day, on television, on radio, on social media, the way they have produced statistics and presented them 
have been done in a way to guarantee that everyone's terrified and will comply with all the measures that are being put forward. And you could say, I mean, the most generous thing you could say is, well, that's a shrewd way of managing the situation. Uh, but that's the most generous thing you can say about it. And I think using the diagnostic test in the way it has been, and there have been many voices saying exactly what you just said, Loomis, that it, it, it is not an accurate way of diagnosing an infection with a specific virus. It, it does something different, and it enables governments to produce statistics that can then be used rather shrewdly, if I, if I put it that way. Right. Yeah. I'm just thinking because they put that swab up in the nose. I haven't done it, but, you know, they are taking DNA, and when they can amplify it a bunch of times, you could say that somebody could be, you know, looking at, and they could be databasing all this DNA as well while they're testing. Yeah, well, that is certainly possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy time to be alive. I mean, it's... (laughs) It is, and it's... Because it's so crazy, and because if you're paying attention, you, you're, you're probably thinking what on earth is happening, and you're trying to put the pieces together, it is a time when I think our ancestors do us a great service by painting uh, a bigger picture for us, so that when we hear arguments about what access to food, what access to medications, what access to clean drinking water, so on and so forth, how long lived should they be, we realize this is a, a much, much bigger story that is not just about humans managing humans. And I think if we can see the bigger context, then perhaps we can be less pushed and pulled by what's in the news cycle from day to day if we want to get a, our head around what's going on in history. Yeah, absolutely, because we're all related to this origin and this origin that we talk about came out and like your book is about escaping Eden. We're trying to escape, trying to make a new path away from all of that manipulation. Exactly. All the lies and the suppression too. And I think there are some really uh, helpful tools that come with some of these narratives. I mean, I mentioned for instance, that in the spectrum of colonizers are these arconic beings, these energy based beings um, what many traditions tell us about them is that they thrive on a human population that is anxious, ill and or depressed. And those stories do have a and the moral is to them. And the moral is we need to pay very careful attention to what state of mind we allow ourselves to be pushed into, what emotional state we allow ourselves to be pushed into. I have a lot of sensible friends who have been very careful about rationing their time on social media, rationing their time watching the TV or listening to the radio in 2020, because they're very conscious of not wanting to be pulled into a slough of despond or a a high cortisol state of heightened anxiety. If you don't want to be fooled, manipulated, the best thing you can do for yourself is not to be anxious not to be depressed, but to look after your health, look after your state of mind, get some sunshine on your skin and some oxygen in your lungs, get the beta endorphins that you need, look after yourselves and your loved ones to ensure that we are actually in a place of 
happiness, health, equilibrium, peace of mind, because that's the best state to be in whatever it is you're wanting to tackle, whatever is going on in the outside world. And I actually think a lot of people have woken up to this in 2020, that we need to look after our state of mind and live in a more sovereign, what is my contribution? How do I want to live my life? And to be very deliberate and proactive in those ways. Yes. There's a popular meme going around that has a TV being thrown out of a window and it says the cure for COVID. And I, I think, that, <laughs> you know, being, being a, uh, able to shut the media off. And it's been hard because this year you've had to kind of watch the media to know what's going on kind of day by day. And so you do have, you've had to dip into that fear a bit more than normal. But yes. when, when people turn it off, they feel so much, you know, they, they're not being manipulated. They have their own thoughts. They can go into nature. They can go ground themselves and become, you know, they don't have to be what the media is portraying. Because I've done a lot of study on media, and, and whatever they're portraying is not real life. It's like a exaggeration yeah. of real life. So I know that, that. But for a lot of people, they don't. And they're continually on a screen, and it's just it's not healthy. We have to... We have to evolve from that and escape from, well, that's that's our Eden as well. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people have the notion, have the idea that what gets presented to us as news from day to day is is a story. It's not, it's not the whole picture. It's not an accurate picture. And I think that knowledge is really, really important right now. A lot of people have forgotten that because they got scared and so they go for information from day to day and have that fear reinforced but you know remember what you knew last year which is that you never take entirely seriously what's in the newspaper or what's on the tv remember what you knew before about how the media works and what kind of stories tv news loves to run with and I think the way to remember what we knew before is just to switch the fear off and begin looking after each other and encouraging one another so we can think a little bit more smartly and a little bit more creatively. And as I say, listen to what our ancestors have told us to help us navigate times exactly like this. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, with that, I, I was going to ask you, because you're a Bible, Bible scholar, and with the much more greater awareness of the world and Christianity, what do you think about the book of Revelation? Are, are we there? Is 2020, I mean, 2020 has everybody thinking so, especially Bill Gates and this quantum tattoo vaccine idea, <laughs> mark of the beast, you know. If the prophecies are correct, where, where, do you, where do you see things going from here? And do you think disclosure lines up with Jesus returning? I mean, and I've seen videos of yours about proposing that, Jesus was maybe E.T. or somebody who was, you know, uh, her his mother was artificially inseminated, suddenly pregnant. I mean, there's a lot to, to take from that. But what do you think about these end times? Do you think that part of the Bible was actually uh, transcribed right? Yes, there are lots of really interesting uh, overlaps there. And I think Revelation, first of all, I'm not, I'm not an expert on revelation, but I do know that it is a sequence of revelations that John the writer reports and has pulled together. 
And you can read it from start to finish as if it's a, you know, like a novel with a beginning and a middle and an end. But I actually think that Revelation doesn't work like that, that it's a more of a swirling pattern, because what the writer repeats is, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. That doesn't necessarily mean a, a an historical sequence. It's a sequence of visions. Uh, and some of those visions would appear to describe the whole arc of history. And some of those visions would seem to relate to the beginning of the Christian era. And some of those visions are things you could find a fulfillment in any age. And so that story of, you know, bearing the mark so that you can do business. There are many times in history when you could say, oh, I can see how that worked then. And of course, we are looking at that now. You know, when we look at, uh, you know, COVID safe passports and uh, getting uh, chips so we can be tracked and all the rest of that, that that's another obvious parallel with that language and that metaphor but there were there were equivalents to that back in the days of the roman empire and i think that some of those visions just like the ancestral stories of beginnings are are written in a way that can inform us in any age of the kind of dynamics that go on um, when we're living in an age of empire you've got other passages there that talk about the fall of an international economic system well, that's intriguing because in times past, you could not conceive of how an international trading system could collapse within a night and a day, which is what happens in Revelation. Now in the 21st century, well, yes, I guess we could. You know, if you suddenly knock out all our computing power, we'd be in, in, in a bit of trouble. So there are intriguing things there, some that seem to speak very specially to what's happening now, some that could apply all through human history and others that are really to do with the the progress of early Christianity under the Roman Empire. So all that is part of the mix there. And then you mentioned the the uh, narrative of, of the virgin birth uh, of Jesus. And I go into that a little bit in the sequel. The Scars of Eden is the sequel to Escaping from Eden. And I point out that there is this narrative that repeats all around the world of you can go to figures like Jesus, John the Baptist, um, Isaac, Samson, the Yellow Emperor, Lao Tzu. And you find you're reading stories of mothers who have had odd experiences during the pregnancy or at the time of conception of these rather significant people. And you read that and you think, oh, well, look, they're bound to make up some fanciful story to say, well, that's why Lao Tzu was so special. or That's why Jesus was so special. But in my research, I found actually that's a far more widely recurring story than a few famous people and that there are women all around the world today who will tell you they've had odd, anomalous experiences like that. And sometimes they will say, and that was with that child, and there is something different about that child. Our stories of beginning say that we're all a blend of earthling with a bit of uh, ET modification. And it may be that some are more modified than others. And that's really the, the message of the story of what we might call indigo children or star children. And the fact that you've got at least three examples of that within the Judeo-Christian tradition and that it repeats, you know, 
courses as remotely as Chinese history of Lao Tzu and the Yellow Emperor, that ought to get our attention and make us think, all right, something's going on. And then I would hope that when a mother today has a story that sounds really strange, we would listen with a bit more respect and say, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah. Well, so now that you have gone from the transition from what we were a minister to now, has your faith in a higher force, God, Jesus, has it only improved and defined that? Well, it certainly reframed a lot of things for me. Um, you know, it takes a while to think through the implications of this kind of information on your worldview, whatever your start point, whether it's a religious start point or a non-religious start point. Beliefs are going to change when you start putting the picture together that we're in a populated universe and that there's been some relationship with our neighbors from the get go in terms of the history of Homo sapiens. It does reframe a lot of things. But for me, one of the things that really helped was to understand that everything I'm putting out in Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden was said before, two and a half thousand years ago, by the Greek philosopher Plato. He believed in God and he believed that there had been E.T. interventions in our evolution. And he does us the favor of describing what he means by God. Uh, he says that in the beginning, before the material universe, was consciousness. Well, my ears pricked up when I heard that because quantum research is pointing to consciousness as the prime organizing principle. And Plato said there was this unified field of consciousness, meaning intelligence, meaning harmony, love, order, which then fractalized to form the material universe. He argued that the material universe exists in order for that primordial consciousness to express itself. And that's his story of God and his, story, his big story of us. And then he says, at some point in our evolution, we were visited and upgraded so that we as animals could have a greater capacity for consciousness, intelligence, and ultimately technology. Now, the reason I found him so helpful is that those early church fathers I mentioned before who read the Hebrew scriptures the way I do, they got their vision of God really, uh, I wouldn't say they got it from Plato. They read Plato and they recognized what he was saying. And they said, yes, that matches our understanding of God. And the Apostle Paul himself, right in the roots of Christianity, described his vision of God in very similar language. He was preaching a sermon in Athens. It's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And he says to that audience, by God, I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it. So that's, my, that's how I would describe, if I use the word God, that's what I'm talking about. The cosmic source, the zero point, the unified field. And it reframes how I look at Jesus as well, because how Plato describes our evolution as a species, our progress as conscious beings who then become material beings, who then return to a relationship with cosmic consciousness. That's actually the same storyline that John tells for Jesus. And suddenly I realize Jesus is being presented to us in the way Plato describes all of us, that the hero's journey that Jesus is on is actually the journey of all of us. And so it's made me go back and rediscover Jesus in that kind of a way as a teacher, as a model, as someone more conscious, more intelligent than the rest of us, and 
showing what's possible for all of us. And those themes are there in his teaching. When he says, I'm an example, you'll do all the things you see me doing. He is presenting that picture. And so there's been a rediscovery for me of God, of Jesus. And, and from my perspective, I would say my vision of both have really lifted and expanded. And I'm more excited and more appetitious to learn than I've been in a long time. That's great. That's good. Yeah, I think more people need to make that transition. And I guess for some people that are not going to be pointing religious toward religion or never have been, can I think cling on to that better. Well, yeah, I've had a lot of feedback from people who have said I've, I've never had anything to do with religion, never been interested in it. Certainly not wanted to get into the religious faith of my my family or relatives or whatever, but I picked up your book and that gives me a vision. Actually, I can do business with that idea. Actually, that does give me something to hold on to that I'm interested in exploring. And it is language that includes the idea of God. If we're looking at a, a source or something that we're all connected with and that connects all of us, Uh, I'm really excited when I hear readers who say that because I think the universe we live in is far more exciting and mysterious and wonderful than our conventional stories have often told. Yes, absolutely. The world's so much bigger than the the world we're supposed to look at in school, work. I mean, that's that's why I do this show. I am trying to show people that and to, to leave all this behind and see that there is a bigger world that we need to embrace, that we need to, uh, you know, be excited about. Because it gets a lot more exciting than the regular life that's been put in front of us. And, and for me, another ingredient is that the cultures that have curated the stories of uh, human origins that I talk about with a populated universe, with ET visitors, um, modifying our ancestors, those same cultures all talk about ways in which we can upgrade ourselves to live a more intelligent, more conscious, more empowered life. And all the kinds of things that we see in figures like Jesus, the ability to live without fear, I think is one of the great things I take from him, but also the potential that we might have higher cognitive abilities, that our abilities to thrive and self-heal might be far greater than ever we thought. Those are some of the possibilities I came away with in escaping from Eden that have whetted my appetite to learn even more. That's great. Well, let's, it's about time to wrap it up here. Do you, you want to plug your website and your books and YouTube and all that? Yeah, sure. Uh, escaping from Eden You can find Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. It's published by John Hunt Publishing. The sequel, The Scars of Eden, is due out with John Hunt Publishing April of next year. And in the new year, that should be ready for pre-order. So that's The Scars of Eden. Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, get that pre-ordered. You can go to my website, paulantonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H. Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulantonywallace.com. That will keep you up to speed with what I'm doing. Go to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube to fifthkind.tv and the Fifthkind TV on YouTube as well, where you'll see many of our documentaries that share this kind of information. That's great. That's good. So do you have any, any last words for the audience? 
I think uh, I'm really excited to see the huge breadth of people who've engaged with me through Escaping from Eden who are really uh, waking up and asking questions like never before. Who And maybe it's part of post-modernity. Maybe it's part of what's going on in 2020 but that are asking far more questions and saying, I just don't buy into the old stories anymore. I want to know what's really going on. And I absolutely applaud that. And I love connecting with people on that journey. So if that's you and you want to connect with me through the website, absolutely do. I'd love to be in conversation. Let's encourage one another. Thank you for coming on, Paul. Appreciate oh, thanks, Loomis. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show today. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to have you on again and, and – uh you know, um, maybe when your new book comes out. Definitely. That'd be a lot of fun. All right. Another great guest on Shannon Down Radio. And think of the courage that Paul Wallace has to come out with, to come out of the church and speak these truths, truths that no preacher can really argue with other than deny, but he's going to get so much flack for it. But that's that's the kind of people I like to have on the show, people that have decided to go and go where the truth goes and not where everybody else goes for comfort. Great guest, and I recommend that you get his book and watch his YouTube channel. Check out the videos on there. If you're new to this type of info, please don't let it rock your personal relationship with the real creator. If you're coming right out of a religion or whatever, um, you know, that is something that cannot be touched. And above all, there is nothing but a loving consciousness that will answer your prayers and requests and is there. This force lives by natural law. It overrides man's laws, ETs, and anything below it. This is, you know, it's higher and encompasses all, and nothing can topple it. So don't let people, don't let things discourage you. Just let it open up a bigger world for you. Jesus lived by these laws, and whatever you make of him, he was an example of someone who we should be accessing our higher powers. And we have the ability to do all of those things and more. Uh, ESP, telekinesis, and the, this force that that can be inside of us and is coming from this high creator, the, the great spirit, whatever you want to call it, it will guide you and lead you in life. It guides you the most when you let go. It comes in through synchronicity. Not man's ways, not structured ways of the system, but ways that that you don't create. Ways that gets created for you without man's help. Man's ways limit and stop it, where this this is a force that goes in between the cracks. And, you know, how can you have a God in the Old Testament who wages wars, is jealous, makes up a man, like, uh, put his son on an altar, and, you know, and that God is the God of all-knowing and love? You know, how can the Sumerian tablets be so similar to Genesis? Just another amazing coincidence? It's like, you know, you really have to look at that. And it's important to look at that. And I know that there's this whole argument about, um, you know, if Zachariah Sitchin was wrong or right. I kind of believe he's sort of right in the middle between the other guy, Michael Hauser, who says he's wrong. And I think it's right in the middle there. I think the real information is that there was these sky gods, these beings that came and they, you know, uh, you know, created this, these hybrid humans to be slaves in, in their system, in their civilization and have advanced ways. Um, and so I see that and it's pretty obvious. Uh, I, I think that 
the bigger picture that our species has been manipulated and run by beings who are less than God is an accurate way to look at ourselves. We have the spark of divinity, but we have been misled by the parenting of dysfunctional beings. Therefore, we are that. The major religions of the world have been created by empire, but underneath there is this vein of truth. And if you can siphon that out and grab that in the between the cracks types of information, I think that's where you get somewhere. Every culture in the world has a similar creation story, so you can kind of put that together. And on this mini-series of shows, the Beyond Earth series, we've looked at all this, but there, there is never enough time to cover it all. I mean, this is volumes of information, you know? And this, this is part 14, and there could be many more parts, and there probably will be. I'm sure there will. And I, I think this show furthers that exploration, and you should check out Paul Wallace's work. It's a great bridge for many walks of life, and I think that finally um, so we're getting somewhere by looking at all this in, in the right light. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that, that is uh, an important thing to in this mini-series is to really uh, you know go back to the beginning episode where I start sharing this info and you know put it all together. It's good. Uh, somebody wrote me a while back on what I thought of ancient aliens, and I didn't. I saved the question for this show because I thought it would pertain better. So here it is. I, and I think Ancient Aliens is actually a decent TV show, especially for beginners who want to dive into the wide spectrum of this phenomena. Even though it's a TV show, it has a lot of real facts that someone can learn, and you can glean the good stuff out of there. And I'm not one to remote TV shows. You know I'm anti-media, but you know, I, I hate TV and all its manipulation and lies. And I can tell it's controlled and how they put out information on Ancient Aliens, but not bad in shallow ways. And to where you can, you can take a show and then investigate further into the info you got from it. They do put a lot of real facts in there. But then there's a lot of bullshit in there too, so you gotta, you know, weed out the bullshit. Uh, my biggest complaint about Ancient Aliens is that it doesn't keep building on ideas and giving a bigger, solid picture as it rolls along. It doesn't, it, it needs to do an all-things-considered episode and construct an all-encompassing look at what they've been investigating for so, for long so long cuz they're on like season 14 now that they should you know do that that's that's my complaint about the about ancient aliens and my other complaint is that they try to fit aliens into everything and sometimes it's not aliens sometimes if it doesn't fit it doesn't fit you know if it's a square peg trying to go in a round hole you know not always does it fit but it doesn't go as deep as I'd like, but it's worth watching, and I think that you can glean the good stuff from there, and you can't help but like Giorgio Tsoukalos for his enthusiasm, you know? He seems like kind of a cool guy, but anyway, you know, that's what I think about Ancient Aliens. It's, um, it's a TV show, so it can't say everything that it should say, but they do a pretty decent job, and, you know, they do get real researchers on there. In fact, David Whitehead that I had on this show, he's on there at times, and so I do like some of the people that come on there. Uh, yeah, so listen to this whole miniseries, the Beyond Earth series, but listen to Channel Down Radio. Channel Down Radio has a lot of different subjects that I put together, and, you know, um, some freestanding shows, other in miniseries. Um, <clears throat> The website, again, if you don't know, for this show is ChannonDownRadio.com, where it all comes together in one place. My YouTube channel is Truth Filled Trajectory, which hardly anybody goes on, and I hope 
that you can go through the maze of YouTube and get there. Just just type in truth-filled trajectory. You'll find me, and I have ten episodes on there. And um, some of it does pertain, a couple of UFO episodes, to this miniseries. So you that is the back door to Chant It Down Radio. And you can follow me on Instagram. It's called Chant It Down. That simple. And uh, it's there. I <clears throat> hardly get on there, but I try to revamp it recently. And so that's what you can do. And lots of shows coming your way. Lots of different subject matter. I like to keep this show versatile so you can go a lot of different directions in this crazy world we're going and in the path we're, we're on right now. Um, but enjoy. What, what's coming toward you is a lot of good shows. And um, if you have any questions... Uh, guest uh, recommendations or anything related, you can always email me at peoplebeyondthis at gmail.com. All right. Well, be a warrior, not a worrier, and chant it down.